You're listening to Strange by Nature, your guide to the strange, weird, unbelievable, and improbable wonders of the natural world. Hello, everyone. Thanks for being here today. I am Kirk Mona, and I am joined today by Rachel Ginza and Victoria Thompson. We are all professional naturalists who together have scoured the world for weird and wonderful wonders just to please your mammalian brain's desire for novelty. Isn't that nice? Let's do this. Hello, everybody. I am starting off us off this week uh, with a topic that was actually inspired by my last week's topic of the Atacama Desert. Oh, okay. Yeah. Intriguing. So last week I talked about how the Atacama is a fog desert. And it's one of a small handful of fog deserts that exist around the world. Right. And the one that's most similar to the Atacama is the Namib Desert on the southwest coast of Africa, mainly in Namibia. Go figure. Yeah, right. Uh, So I was actually, I had been going back and forth about whether to discuss the Namib or the Atacama. But the Namib is nearly as dry and maybe just as old as the Atacama. Uh, But I want to talk about some of the plant and animal life that has some adaptations. So similar to the Atacama, what plant and animal life there is in the Namib has uh, some remarkable adaptations to make the most of what water is available. So actually, amazingly, there are even lions that live in the Namib, and they get most of their water from the blood of the animals they kill. So they they hardly drink much water at all. And they actually... All right. <laughs> they will even eat uh, seals. They're the only lions to regularly eat seals and seabirds. Hold on, hold on. I... Uh, yeah, hold on. I'm I'm with Rachel on this one. Full stop. Yeah. First of all, lions. Uh huh. Water. Uh-huh. I didn't yeah. know that there are lions. I knew that some lions kind of like water, but most cats don't. Well, I don't but know if they're getting the into the can... water. Okay. They might be getting a, like a seal that's up on the beach. Can, can you give I'm, us... I'm hung up on seals in the desert. There's also that. Um, also, can you give us a geographic like pinpoint where the Namib, Namib desert is? Um, so this is like southwestern Africa on the coast. So similar to the Atacama, it's, it's in between the ocean and a, a, a mountain-like geographic feature to the okay. east. Okay. Um, so... These lions can be near the beaches and and kill seals, but this is not actually what I wanted to talk about. Oh, okay. <laughs> I gotta say, uh, seals in the desert. Yep. You have me at the strange. Yeah, right no. There. I oh, mean, the, the coastal waters are quite productive, so the seals have plenty to eat. Um, and then you know they come okay, up on so shore. So the desert, the desert, the desert abuts the ocean. Correct. Yes. Okay. That uh, was a a little key piece I was missing in my brain. That was like I. Why are there seals in the desert? <laughs> yeah. I got you now. Okay. Yeah. Um, what I actually want to talk about is an organism that can't roam around like lions do, and it has to get whatever water comes its way. It's a plant, of course. Uh, so okay. the Austrian yeah. scientist who first recorded this plant for Western science said that when he first saw it, he just fell to his knees and simply gazed at it for a long time, afraid to touch it in case it wasn't real because it looked <laughs> so strange. Okay. Um, this guy's sure. name was Friedrich Velvich, and the plant is now named after him. It's called Velvichia mirabilis, 
known as Velvetia. Um, it's also called tree tumbo in English, which is uh, similar to its name and main name in Namibia, which is tumboa. Tumboa. Okay. So have either of you heard of this plant? No. I don't think so. Okay. I don't think oh, so. Oh, wait. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Say, say the name again. It's, pronoun- it's spelled Welwitchia. Or, yes. But it could be pronounced oh. Velvichia. I believe I've eaten this. Eaten? That's what I'm thinking of. Well, we'll see. Uh, so it is really, really one of the strangest plants around. Uh, it's a gymnosperm. So it's like a like conifers, like pine trees, like cycads. Uh, it means it makes cones and seeds rather than flowers and fruit. It's one of the two big divisions of plants. And uh, this plant consists of its root system, a stem base, and two leaves, and nothing else. Uh, Not the plant I'm thinking of. Okay. The plant I'm thinking of has the uh, same uh, species, different genus. Uh, I, all right. Gotcha. I, I just looked up. I just looked this up so I could get a picture. And I, what? <laughs> yeah. So they can be up to 1.8 meters high and 8.7 meters wide. So that's uh, about like six Whoa. feet high and... Um, almost like 18 feet wide, I guess. Hey, Kirk, jumping in here on the edit, uh, just so we have the right number. 8.7 meters is actually 28 feet and six and a half inches. So pretty big. So these two leaves, two solitary leaves are huge, wide, flat, kind of leathery. And as they age, they get shredded into ribbons. Right. And they curve outward to the ground. So the plant sort of looks like a giant ugly bow on top of a wrapped present. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, this this plant does not look nice. It's like a train wreck <laughs> of a plant. <laughs> yeah. I would be concerned if if this was my plant, I would be so concerned. I would be watering it probably too much because it would I thought it would I would think it's dying. Yeah. It, it looks look like a healthy. like a pile of pale green dirty laundry. Yes. That's kind of the, um, the image I'm getting in my head. In, in spite of the ragged appearance, they can actually be extremely long-lived. So based on carbon dating, it appears that some of the biggest plants may be as old as 2,000 years. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And uh, there's a general lifespan estimated of 400 to 1,500 years. Amazing. Interestingly, plants are so cool. Yeah. Unlike a lot of gymnosperms, which are usually wind pollinated, uh, Welwitchia produces nectar and is pollinated by insects. Now, um, in the back- desert? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sure. Why not? What, would, oh, I, you might not have researched this. What insects? Uh, they're not totally sure. They think maybe a beetle, maybe a wasp, maybe more than one type of insect. Okay. Yeah. But back to the fact that it has only two leaves. So gardeners and botanists will know this, and others, you may remember some of this from elementary school science experiments, but when seeds first germinate, they send up one or two small leaves called cotyledons. And these are usually somewhat different in appearance from the regular leaves that grow later. 
actually in gymnosperms that can be up to 24 cotyledons. But um, at any rate, other normal sure. leaves are added as the plant grows and the cotyledons are eventually shed. Not for Welwichia. It just keeps the two cotyledons and never grows any other leaves. So it's a, it's a dicot and that's all it got. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I think if I it's a gymnosperm, it... you can't exactly call it a dicot. Okay. But okay. Yes. I think those are technically monocots. Yeah. We're getting into super nerdy plant stuff. All right. We'll avoid, we'll avoid <laughs> yeah. the super nerdy plants. Yeah. Okay. Okay. But uh, still, okay. So it grows the two, basically the starter leaves and then doesn't grow anymore. Right. They just keep growing. Wow. Yeah. Do they do those leaves ever like die off and they have to grow new ones? No. That's why they get all shredded. Wow. It just keeps on growing fresh from the base yeah. and the okay. It just sort of like like uh yeah. Like hair. Oh. Except it never falls out. Amazing. Huh. Amazing. Yeah. And it huh. uh so leaving the leaves and going out to the root system. The taproot goes very deep to find underground water, and it also has a wide uh, network of more spongy roots that spread out to find water in the more shallow areas around the plant. And the leaves are also textured so that they cap are really good at capturing the fog that rolls in each night into oh, the okay. desert from the ocean. Go. Nice. And the curving shape of the leaves down to the ground directs the water drops down to where the roots are. So it's really, really amazingly adapted to just get whatever water it can out. And it, it's it, effective. Yeah, it tends to grow in dry stream beds. So if there is rain, you know, it can get the water that that comes through. Uh, the leaves also have an unusually high number of stomata. That's the little pore holes in them. Um, so for a long time, botanists thought that it maybe actually absorbed water directly through the leaves. But uh, apparently that is not the case based on more recent research. So do they know why it has so many stomata? Unclear. Unclear. Yeah. Not that I saw. Uh, hmm. So as you might imagine, as one of the few plants that's growing in a very dry desert, they are a key species for the animals that live, do live there. And uh, in, sure, sure. Yeah, in drought conditions, various animals like springbok uh, can be seen chewing their leaves to get moisture. Uh, You're like, no, I don't have many. <laughs> I'm Sorry, dry. Freaking... I'm dry. Really rough. Don't eat me. And it's also, of course, used for shelter by various animals because it makes some pretty good shade if you're a small oh, creature. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds like a lovely living spot. Yeah. And, you know, there are not a lot of people in this area of the world, so it's in okay shape conservation wise there is a fungal pathogen that's causing some concern uh recently and then it's it can be subject to overgrazing from animals that are in the desert uh either wild animals or or uh, domesticated ones and mm, stuff like mm -hmm. off-road vehicles running over them <laughs> is not good for them either that'll do it yep but uh it's a super cool plant yep. really amazing there's nothing else like it and it's found in many botanic gardens and conservatories, so you might actually be able to go see one uh, if you live near a place that happens to grow it. That'd be cool to see. Cool. And I would love to see one in person. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know if, um, like, I looked up to try to see if it was at the Como Zoo Conservatory, but uh, didn't, 
didn't find any information on that. That's that's our closest uh, conservatory conservatory to where we live. Yeah. Hmm. Well, if you, any of our dear listeners, have ever seen one of these near you, please do drop us a line and let us know. Yeah, I want to see it. Yeah. And I just did want to shout out the, uh, the website for the South African National Biodiversity Institute, because their webpage on Wobuchi was particularly helpful. Awesome. Thanks, Victoria. Thank you. That's cool. Yeah. You're welcome. We are going to have a quick break, and when we come back, it'll be Kirk's turn. So we find ourselves here at the end of season uh, one. There's just one more episode, a real special episode after this. We wanted to thank those of you who have helped make it possible with your financial support. And those are the members of the Society of Strange. Our newest members are Amanda and Amy and Dave and Linda and Robert and Oakley. A big shout out to all of you. Thank you guys so much. You're awesome. Thank you. Yes, woohoo! Thank you uh, for being support uh, part of our patrons and supporting the Society of Strange. If you want to help out, you can head on over to Patreon.com/strangebynature to become a member of the Society yourself today. Now back to the show. So I don't know if you all remember. A couple of weeks back, we had Laura on as our guest on the podcast. It was episode fifty-one, and I said there was two theories behind how researchers think animals know which way is north or which way is south, right? And the one that ended up discussing Mm -hmm. was this bizarre idea that birds can actually see the magnetic field of the Earth due to quantum entanglement of electrons in their eyes. Yeah. Uh, That story still baffles me. Uh, I'm still trying to wrap my brain around it, Kirk. Yeah, if you haven't haven't heard that episode, do go check it out. It it was really fun. Uh, I mentioned in that episode, though, that there is another hypothesis how animals find their way and it was very simply put that they have metal in their heads they're metal heads uh so oh my god <laughs> uh you might be thinking wait a minute didn't we rule that out as being the possible solution when we figured out the eye thing and there's really no reason to think that these two hypotheses are mutually exclusive meaning they could both be. just because one is true does not mean the other has to be false animals could be using both methods. So, yes, that's what I'm, that's what I'm talking about this week. Uh, is there really evidence of metal in the bodies of animals, giving them a sense of direction? It turns out, hmm. yeah. What yeah, there is? What? Oh yeah. Hold on. Oh, whoa, yeah. whoa, 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 whoa. What? <laughs> oh yeah, that's that's what we're talking about. So, um, I, some... I, I, I bet it's very, very small oh, amounts yeah. of metal. Right. Of course, yeah. So some right, listeners so it's may not a recall. Plate. Got it. No, no, not a steel plate in your head. That's if you have that, that was added. Um, there was <laughs> a study that came out that was been cited sometimes about like pigeons having metal deposits in their beaks. I remember hearing about that years ago. That study was unfortunately kind of debunked. Um, but there, there's a new, very interesting study that came out last month in the worst named scientific journal of all. Time. Yes, tell me, tell Ooh, me. Tell I can't me, wait to me, hear this. Me. What is it? Well, last week my story was when the proceedings of the Royal Society, right? Right. It sounded well, pretentious, yeah. but good. Americans decided that sounded pretty cool. So they decided to form the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences to sort of like be on par with that. But of course, that's a mouthful. And so right. we're like, oh, no, no, we have to shorten that. And so I'm just going to spell out the acronym here it's P N A S. 
Now, gentle listeners, I'll leave it to you to decide how to pronounce PNAS. And we're just going to leave that there and move right on. I think the P is silent, Kirk. Yeah. We're just going to say the P sure. is silent. Sure. It's pronounced in mass. Uh-huh. The P yeah. is silent. <laughs> okay there, Rachel. It wasn't that funny, it's I thought. It's been a long day. <laughs> All right. Well, the story that caught my eye in the uh, that particular journal uh, was called Conservation of Magnetite Biomineralization in All Domains of Life and Implications for Magnetic Sensing. So the upshot of this research is that they were able to show that basic bacterial eukaryotic life has the ability to biomineralize free iron in the environment into magnetite crystals. And what? magnetite for... Magnetite, wow. for those not familiar, uh, is a naturally magnetic form of iron. It's actually the form of iron that is most heavily affected by magnetic field. Hence the and name magnetite. magnetite. It's a very cool mineral. Um, now, most of the life we commonly think of on Earth is eukaryotic life. This is something we've talked about on the show before. Um, and thus is believed that most of this life on Earth has evolved from simple eukaryotic bacteria. And what these researchers were able to, were trying to show is that this ability to biomineralize magnetite is found at the very base of the evolutionary tree and is something that could, at least theoretically, have been spread to essentially all or many higher forms of life higher up on the evolutionary tree. So hmm. the big question that becomes, well, was it? Hmm. Uh, incredibly, the answer appears to be Yes. I was hoping uh, you would say it ooh. was yes. Yeah. So the research team identified uh, the genes responsible for their mineral mineralization in the bacteria. And they then looked at salmon because uh, salmon have incredible navigation and orientation skills. We should just do an episode on salmon. Uh, but they're able to identify minuscule samples of magnetite crystals that were in like little clusters. Mm -hmm. In the olfactory cells of the salmon, which is pretty in their nose, yeah. Mm. So basically, in their nose, and we mainly think of olfactory cells as helping us smell, right? But it could be that they also help animals find their way, thing magnetic field of the earth. The researchers were able to when I, talk, I started talking about genes, right? So I looked at right. the genes in the um, the eukaryotic bacteria and whatnot to show that like. These are the ones that help them uh, biomineralize um, magnetite. Mm -hmm. They were able to find homologous genes in the salmon that they believe correspond to the genes in the bacteria that code for that. So it's like, huh. not only did they find magnetite there, they found essentially the same genes. Um, and it's not just one gene. It's a group of about 11 or so found that were also present in the salmon and so whoa it's that's like, more significant it seems, yeah it, it's really cool um now i, I am huh. simplifying a lot of what was in this research paper uh, i want to throw too much at people at once uh for example there was a whole thing about how the genes found in the eukaryotic bacteria were also found in even older or basic prokaryotic life so the ability to biomineralize magnetite goes way back uh, and it's really fascinating that it has carried forward to this day and is possibly crucial to how many species 
find their way around on this magnetic planet of ours, which I think is so amazingly cool, and I just love it. Uh, the idea that animals actually have tiny magnetite magnets in their heads is amazing and uh, ridiculous. At the same time, uh, it's, you know, because you picture like a big magnet in your head and that's not what it is. Uh, But from an evolutionary standpoint, though, given that we live on a planet with a fairly strong magnetic field, I think it'd actually be almost weirder uh, if at least some animals had not evolved away to take advantage of that, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, I suppose. Especially since, like, the ability to get magnetite in your body, like, sort of baked into our DNA. Now, I will say, other teams had looked for magnetite in animals before and not found it. So, uh, the paper also discusses some new techniques they used to kind of find this. Like, we're getting better at finding the magnetite in the animals. Uh, And these were tiny clusters of crystals. And now that we know to look for them, we need, like, researchers to start checking other animals. And really also nailing down the bigger question of how. Like, how can a body be using these to actually sense the magnetic field? Because I don't think that's the part we have totally figured out yet. So very Mm -hmm. similar to the eye research I was talking about. We have a plausible, you know, um, method. Not a method, like, um, how do I want to say it? Like, we have uh, something there that could make it possible. We're not sure how that translates exactly into the animal's sensing the magnetic field or what that would be like them for them uh, but there is some really interesting um things that research went into about um different nerves and how certain nerves were connected to these areas and so they're they are actually starting to hone in on that how question as well which i think is so so amazing uh so it's kind of what i have you magnet headed animals uh <laughs> I, I i i love it and i i love that you know this new research is constantly going on. And I feel like we live in this amazing time when there's just so, so many new things being found out. And so it's always fun to, uh, about what we know and also what we don't yet know and are trying to figure out. That's really fair. Also, I'm not going to get the, the picture out of my head of a salmon with like a magnet stuck up its nose. (laughs) I mean, want to have that in your head I, I can't stop you i don't want it in my head but it's interesting <laughs> <laughs> well that's not the Im- i mean that's a that's a cool image that's not the image i have in my head the image i have in my head is how i would go about finding little bits of magnetite in an organism mm-hmm. and um the the method that occurred to me is stick the whole thing in a blender and then well and that put it out on a tray pass a magnet over it and see if anything I, I, I mean, wasn't going to into this, but um, that actually, I think they kind of address that a little bit in the paper because there had been previous studies looking for magnetite in salmon, and they basically found there was magnetite, but it was sort of just like clumped up and free floating around. And they're like, well, this doesn't, this can't be useful. It must be just like incidental like gunk, intercellular gunk, kind of, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, uh-huh. But what these researchers, of figured out was that the technique that was used um which i didn't i'll admit i didn't understand but i think some people had used basically some like like mri type imaging stuff that uses like rotating magnets to mm-hmm. make the other make the magnetite visible was basically sh- shredding some of the cells possibly because they were using a rotating mm. magnet 
and that rotating magnet was causing perhaps the shredding of cells on a small level and some of the magnetite was escaping from the cells. So it wasn't quite a blender, yeah. Victoria, but they think that, that they, they did actually <laughs> address that in the paper that the technique used can, if it's too much of a destructive technique, I mean, obviously a blender is super destructive, but I'm, even the previous technique they were thinking might've been um, destructive and that's why they didn't get the same results these people did. Who actually came up with a new technique for detecting it? I mean, that just means that the MRI is a giant magnetic blender to a salmon. Okay, now I'm not saying they use an MRI and it's not a blender. Don't worry about going, although you should not have metal on you if you go into an MRI. No. But um, I well, said for strange. salmon, not for humans. <laughs> we can withstand other more, uh, a higher level of magnetism than a salmon. Do you know that? Have you tested that? No, but do you want to? Yeah, let's go. All, All right, right, we're going to take a quick break and go get an MRI and some salmon. <laughs> and uh, when we come back, it'll be Rachel's turn to share some of our strange world with us. Hey, everyone. Something a little different during today's break. Uh, we have a trailer for another podcast you might find interesting. This is the podcast, Dear Humans. Check it out. Hi, I'm Eve. I'm from the east end of Long Island, New York. Growing up, there was one wild animal I came across constantly, deer. Half of the people want to see them vaporized, the other half won't let you touch a little hair on their head. This is a podcast about deer and people, and how in one unique community, these two species are bound in a web of conflict that has been decades in the making. Everybody's screaming for a solution, but nobody's even trying. It makes me want to cry. It's like, how do we undo this? We know that hunting works. Over all these years and all the things they've tried, hunting works. I think people are starting to come around and realize they have to do something. You got to do anything and everything you can to win this battle. In a very real sense, deer-human interactions are a microcosm of the many challenges our society faces in dealing with the natural world. So yes, this is a story about deer but it's also a story about people. It's about the environment and our relationship to it. It's about land and who has the right to inhabit space. It's about disease epidemics. And ultimately, it's about conflict. Why we take sides, how opinions get politicized, and what we can learn by listening to one another. I'm Eve Bishop, and this is Dear Humans. You can listen to the show wherever you get your podcasts. For more information, visit evebishop.net. Welcome back, everybody. Now, what do you both know about the color of the sky? I feel like this is a trick question yeah. now. I'm going to... I mean, it's variable. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I know what you want us to say. It's Oh, it's blue. The sky is blue. 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 Blue sky. The sky is blue most of the time. Yeah. Uh, not in Minnesota blue. in the winter, but sure. Sure. Um, so I just got really intrigued by this question to my... Like, I kind of know why the sky is blue. Um, a lot of the explanation you get when you're a kid is it reflects off of like water par particles or whatever in 
the air and turns blue or whatever, which isn't quite the case. Or it's blue because the ocean is blue. And oh, I hate that one. I hate all that one. All that's my being. Not true. So I decided to go a little uh, more in depth about so it. You're talking I, about your, your, your segment is why is the sky blue? Yeah. Awesome. It was why this why is the sky <laughs> the color that it is? Cool. Um, because you were seven. Because I'm I'm seven. Yes. I was just really <laughs> curious one day. I was thinking about different topics and I was looking off into the sky. I think I was driving at the time and I was like, why is the sky this color? Why does the sunset change? Note that she's and why not is it different watching colors? the road or anything. Okay. Yeah. I was driving into the sunset. <laughs> okay. Like you do. So like I do. It was fine. Um, but I was just really curious because it's not something I've really done. A I'd not done a lot of research on. And um, first of all, for all of you, I went into some physics about this. Um, I am not good on uh, physics very uh, well. We're here to back you up, I appreciate Rachel. that. Rachel, don't I'm do trying. physics good. No. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I did my very, very best. We're so uh, excited. But I wanted to talk about the reason that the sky is the color that it is. And it's whether it's at sunset or sunrise or during the day is due to an effect, a phenomenon called Rayleigh scattering. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, this is not only the brightness of the sky, so like how like bright the blue is and how we have different shades of it or different shades of any of the colors, um, but it also works with uh, the Raman effect. Um, mm, ramen. <laughs> ramen. Is, which flavor? Are we talking uh, chicken or beef or? Uh, it's R A. M A N. So not the noodle dish. <laughs> um which, which is like only it works with it only when it's in high intensities and it's a really it's a much weaker effect. So I'm not going to go into the ramen effect, even though it's a very entertaining name. Um so you tease us with ramen and then we don't get it. I did. Yeah. Man. Yeah. You're making me hungry. I'm so sorry. I did have ramen for lunch today. Um Anyway, getting back on track, the Rayleigh scattering is more or less very basically brought down the effect of sun or light coming in, hitting particles of air, and scattering the light. Yeah. Like, hence why it's called scattering. Mm -hmm. Kind of like, um, I don't, Kirk, I know you've played with prisms. Um, <laughs> Oh, yeah. <laughs> Big nerd, yeah. Pretty much, it's the same effect if you hit white light and you take it uh, like a flashlight to a prism and it breaks it up into all the colors of the rainbow. Yeah. Okay? Now, this is on a much Where did larger... the other colors go, Rachel? I'm getting to it, Victoria. He's so um... impatient. Talk about seven-year-old. Oh. Jeez. Oh. This is why so... we don't give this answer to seven-year-olds because they're like... <laughs> Now I'm bored. <laughs> right. Exactly. That's why I'm giving it here. Where... I'm not saying you're boring, Rachel. This is great. Keep going. Aww, thank you. Um, but 
it's just really it's fascinating because it does it's happening on a widespread scale so throughout the day what's happening is at the big white light for that prism is the sun so all the white light is coming through our atmosphere and it's hitting <laughs> the air particles whether it's um o2 co2 whatever it is and it's nitrogen. hitting nitrogen mostly nitrogen let's let's face it yes and it hits those and it breaks the light apart um the thing is light obviously has multiple wave has multiple wavelengths but it also uh, scatters a little bit differently blue light travels a little faster it has a much higher frequency than like red light mm -hmm. or orange light so when the sun is more or less up high enough in the sky the angle of the sun when it hits those air particles the light that's spread out is blue that's why the sky is blue but as the sun goes uh towards the end when it's like sunset or sunrise the angle changes and so it allows the wavelengths that are being scattered it allows the reds and the oranges, well, and the other lights, uh, wavelengths to hit our eyes so we see a different color, if that makes sense. Yes? Well, I mean, I think, totally. I think the question that uh, Victoria was getting at is like, so when you have the light coming in, it's hitting mm -hmm. dust or you know, different molecules up in the atmosphere. The, yes. Is that the blue light is scattered? more and so we're seeing that more because i think question like you know victoria's saying where does the red light go during the middle of the day yeah so i think my what i what i'm understanding is that when the sunlight scatters uh more more blue light is scattered more blue light is sort of scattered than red light is scattered yes and so the blue is coming through more, more strongly than the other colors, which is why we see blue. Yes. Um, but when the angle changes, more of like the red light gets scattered than blue. That's why we see red at like sunset or sunrise is because the light scatters when it hits at a different angle um, based on where we are on the planet and the sun and everything, um, the angle actually will uh, cause the different wavelengths to be scattered differently. So it allows um, the, the red light to reach us rather than, or be reflected rather than absorbed. This is also incidentally... So what I think I remember is that... Uh, when the sun's near the horizon, the light is actually reaching you through more of the atmosphere yeah. mm -hmm. than when it's higher in the sky. So the, the thickness of the atmosphere is what's mainly causing the effect of the red to show through more. It's interesting, you know, you mentioned like uh, uh, what, what happens to the colors and whatnot too. When you think about mm -hmm. when you're looking at sun, you know, every kid's drawing of the sun in cartoon. The sun is yellow. Yellow, and you go. Our, we do not have a yellow star. Like if you were nope. up in space and looked at the sun, it is white. It is white light. 
But the reason the sun sometimes looks yellow is because the blue is being taken out of the is is scattering, and you're seeing mm-hmm. all the other colors, and so what you're left with is yellow. Exactly. Yeah, huh. this is a really complicated topic that I was trying to distill down as best as I could. Um, you wouldn't think it would be that difficult of a topic because you're just like, well, the the sky is blue because the sky is blue. Who who cares? But there's I a care. lot of uh, okay, I care too. Hence why I did this. But it's um really interesting uh how like the atoms and molecules like interact with each other and how they interact with light particles to scatter. Um, I obviously didn't do it it quite enough justice and if you want to know more i highly recommend you go in um i used a couple different articles like the science i used a science direct article uh on Rayleigh scattering and uh physics georgetown uh physics department had a really interesting um article about Rayleigh scattering that also helped more or less once i deciphered the physics um, <laughs> yeah, but it's it's compli- it's very complicated. It's so complicated, but it's really fascinating if you want to learn a little bit more on why our sky is the color it is. Now, I do have a special uh, little teaser I want to throw out there with this topic. Uh, we have yes. uh, some people who are awesome, who are members of the Society of Strange, and those are our patrons. And I'm I'm going to tease everybody who's not a patron because. In the bonus material for this episode, we do like have a, a little bonus that goes up for each episode. We put other material in. I'm going to mm-hmm. tell all of our patrons, all the Society of Strange members uh, who get that bonus content, I'm going to tell you why this guy actually is not blue. Why would you do this to me, Kirk? No, My no, whole no, topic no. was why well, it was blue. I know, which is, uh, you have to hold on. Well, I'll ask this question then, and I'll, a- I'll tell you, I will answer this question. And I, as a thank you, our patrons get to hear the answer, but uh, you just have to be uh, in agony if you don't hear the answer. The question is, if uh, the wavelengths like blue are scattered uh, more, right? Blue mm-hmm. is not the end of the color spectrum. After bl- not. After blue, we've got your indigos and your purples and whatnot, right? So why is the sky not purple? Oh. Interesting. And I'm going to answer that for you in the bonus. All right. Thank you all for listening this week. <laughs> <laughs> Appreciate it. Got to become a patron to find out the answer, I guess. Sorry. Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's show. Be sure to subscribe. New episodes drop every Wednesday, and we love sharing this strange world with all of our listeners. If you would be so kind as to leave us a five-star review, that would be great. It lets other lovers of The Strange discover the show. You can reach out to us on social media by searching for Strange by Nature Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can send us an email as well. Our address is contact at strangebynaturepodcast.com. If you want more information about the show, you can also check out our website, which is strangebynaturepodcast.com. Until next week, get outside, stay curious, and embrace The Strange.